Are Muslims in the Bible? They just may be. Plus, why the wrath of God never makes converts. We deep dive into the book of Revelation once again on the deep end. Welcome, everybody, to Wednesday at noon, live on Facebook, live on YouTube, and I am your host, Tim Hatch, of the Deep End, here at our Waters Church studios, down in the bowels of Waters Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. We are so glad that you joined us, whether you're joining us online right now, live Wednesday afternoon, or for the multitudes of those of you who cannot escape your job or your responsibilities and watch us live at noon but are listening to us after the fact. We are so glad. Whatever way you are getting this content, we are glad that you are joining us. And so I would commend to you again to like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash TheDeepNTV, or subscribe to us at youtube.com and search uh, The Deep End Channel at Waters Church's channel. Anyway, there's always the easy way, TheDeepEnd.tv. Uh, the deep end.tv. Yes? Yes. So, hey, everybody, I am actually alone today. Well, I'm not totally alone because I have always our crack media team. There they are. Hello, What's going guys. going on, friends? How are you? Awesome. Good. Fantastic. Good to see you. And uh, we have a great team of people every week who'd help put this together. And I'm so thankful for them. But I'm alone. So there's no person over there on the couch. You don't even see the couch in your shot uh, on the camera. And there's just me. And the reason why is because I want us to get to some serious stuff today. And I don't want to I don't want to play around. I, I don't want to mess around. I want to just get to the facts. I I feel like Dragnet today. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Agent. What was his name? I forget his name. What was his name? Something. Friday. Agent Friday. Just the facts. Anyway, today is just the facts. <laughs> just the facts of Revelation chapter 9. We're going to talk about the next two trumpet judgments, two more woeful trumpets. I know we got through four last week and today two more, so there's one more to come. But let's get into it. The book of Revelation. Let's go. All right, uh, the book of Revelation, we are in chapter 9, and I want to just do a quick, quick recap from Revelation chapter 8, which again was the first four trumpet judgments. Now, I just want to remind you of what happened at the end of chapter 8, because verse 13 of Revelation chapter 8 says, Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So three more woes. These are woeful trumpets. Three more trumpets, three woes. Woeful trumpets. And what it really just means is that the intensity of God's judgment upon the earth is going to increase. It's going to increase as the final days come to pass. So when we get into Revelation chapter 9 and onward, uh, and by the way, we have the bold judgments coming too. We've only gone through two sets of judgments, and we're actually one and a half ways through the judgments. But... This is going to get more and more intense. And today we're going to look at there is external and internal uh, difficulties and challenges that are going to be faced by God's people in the last days. And I want to remind you once more, just in case you forget, that Revelation is teaching us how to see the world 
and how to see what's really real. Like what's really real. Not what we just see on the news, not what we just see on social media. What do what does God want his people to see? And that's why it's healthy to study the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse means unveiling. And so what God is doing in Revelation is unveiling to us what is really real. You have to have spiritual eyes to see this. This is not written for the world. This is not written for non-Christians. It is written to the church. Uh, John was given this revelation of Jesus Christ to let Jesus' servants know uh, what was soon to take place uh, after uh, the, the age of the apostles. And so we get into Revelation chapter 9 with the understanding that the intensity is going up. The judgments are getting worse, stronger, and the uh, plagues upon mankind are going to just be unleashed and start wreaking havoc in the world. But how are we supposed to look at these? And we will again talk about the four views of Revelation. I hope you've enjoyed this because all my life I was taught the futurist view. It's the last seven years of the tribulation. And so the last seven years of human history before Jesus comes called the tribulation. And so you don't really have to worry about what happens in Revelation until that happens, until the rapture really happens. And then, then it will start happening. All my life, that was what I was raised believing about Revelation. But as we studied this, I have been presenting to you the four views, and I hope that these have helped you. I hope that you have seen that there is a deeper there's a deeper uh, truth to be seen. There's a deeper uh, uh, vision to catch in the book of Revelation. So let's get into Revelation chapter 9, shall we? Revelation chapter 9, the swarm of locusts. The swarm of locusts. So verse 1 to 6, here's what it says. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft at the bottomless pit. Uh, the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Now, all these images, all these images, you, you can't, you, you don't have to be that biblically literate to see that this is a lot of demonic, satanic images. A star fallen from heaven, bottomless pit, uh, smoke of a great furnace coming up from the pit. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then the smoke came from uh, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. So whatever uh, hell is releasing, uh, there's smoke there, and then the locusts come uh, from the smoke. This is very interesting imagery. I want you to see it because it's important to see what these locusts are. And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So again, God is holding uh, his people safely during the judgments that are coming upon the earth. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people, this is an interesting little statement, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Okay, so good times, right? Like, this is, not, this is not pleasant. Okay, so let's talk about the four views, and I'm not going to talk about all the four views right away because I want to get into something real quickly, and then we'll get back to the four views. But first, let's start with the historicist view. What is the historicist view? The historicist view is that Revelation is unfolding the time from Jesus' resurrection or the apostolic age, you know, A.D. 33 to A.D. 70-ish, all the way until whenever Jesus comes back again. And so this is a this is a uh, broad sweeping view of the church age. Now just remember that. 
Because if that's the case and we take that view, we are at trumpet number five and we are about around the time of 600 AD. And according to the historicists, very interesting interpretation here, the locust swarm that comes from the smoke that ascends from the pit of hell, and this is not going to be politically correct, so prepare yourselves. But they see it as the Muslim invasion of the Roman Empire from 612 to 763 A.D. The king over them is Muhammad. Interesting uh, to note that Muhammad himself claimed to be from a princely family of Arabs who were actually removed from their right to rule about two generations before he was born. And so the idea that they would be ruled by a king is Muhammad assuming the kingship that he probably felt was rightfully his but had been robbed from him from previous generations for whatever reason. And so this is the Muslims coming of age. This is the Muslims actually starting and becoming the Muslims. And the word actually for locust, it's a locust swarm, remember? So the word locust in Hebrew uh, sounds the same as Arab. And that's an interesting little tidbit there, too. And I just want to say that when you look at this through the historicist view, they have a strong point. Like, this is actually a pretty strong argument that they're going to make based on their interpretation of Revelation uh, chapter 9, being that this is, the, uh, the, this is the start of the Muslim movement. So in Judges chapter 6, verse 5, uh, locusts describe, is the word that is used to describe the innumerable army of the Midianites who came up against Israel and Gideon with his 300 men defeated them. And so this is a common expression for the Arab enemies of God's people, locusts, locust swarm. Uh, and by the way, it says, if you look there uh, in verse 4, it says that they were told not to harm the grass the green plants, or any trees. Now, this is really cool, interesting. Just <laughs> historicists are making a strong point here based on what we know of Islam. According to Muslim doctrine of holy war, like when they are supposed to go in and conquer a people because they have... They, they, they see that that's their calling before Allah or their God to conquer other nations and bring them under subjection to Islamic law. Well, according to the doctrine of Islamic law, they are prohibited from destroying vegetation of any people that they invade. So this whole idea where it says in verse 4, they were told not, they were told, they were told not to harm the grass, green, plant, or tree. That's right in line with Muslim doctrines concerning holy war and conquest. Uh, the Muslim conquest, by the way, of 612 to 763 AD, uh, decimated but did not destroy Greek and Latin churches. And so, like it says here, they were given power to harm but not to kill. Uh, they did not gain possession of the empire either. That will happen many, many uh, centuries later. Uh, but they did easily, and this is historically factual, they did easily intimidate, destroy, and convert many corrupt and idolatrous Christians. Now, you got to know this. I say this all the time. There's always like a church within the church. With every, with every church, with our church here in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, with your church, wherever you go, there is always a church within the church, which means that there's people who actually belong to Christ in the church, and then there's people who are just kind of like hanging out. And just time will tell who's in the church and who's just hanging out. Just, just give it time, you'll find out. But in the Muslim conquest of uh, the Eastern Roman Empire in the 600s, uh, it was pretty easily, it was pretty easy and pretty effective for the Muslims to actually convert those nominal Christians. And the first lesson we gained from Revelation chapter 9 the first lesson that we're going to hear right here from the, from the historicist's view is strong Christians survive. Strong Christians survive turbulent times. Weak Christians cave. 
They just do. They just if you're if you're just kind of like hanging out at church, if you're just doing the church thing because that's what mom did, that's what grandmom did, that's how you were raised. Just watch out for that because you are susceptible to these kinds of things. You are susceptible to deception. You are susceptible to lies. You are susceptible to the uh, attractive lies that the enemy will put forth in your mind and in your heart. And so be careful. Christian, get strong. Christian, get into the word of God. Christian, do what we're doing right now in the Deep End Podcast, which is learn. Learn what God has to say. Feed your spirit and your mind and your body, and God will strengthen you for the days ahead. Now, let's ask this question about the five months in verse five, because it says they were allowed to torment them for five months. What's that about? Well, obviously, the Muslim invasion did not last for five months in Eastern Rome. It lasted for 150 years. But this is interesting. This is interesting, because listen to this. Five months, a month is about 30 days. 30 times five is 150 days, which days are often interpreted as years or symbolic of years in the scriptures. And so if you take 150 days and make them 150 years, that's the exact period of time that the Muslims invaded the Eastern Roman Empire from 612 to 763 AD. That's just pretty crazy, if you ask me. That's just pretty interesting that it just lines up like that. So like I said, the historians have perhaps a the strongest case for their view of their interpretation of Revelation based on the events of Revelation chapter 9. So this is this is pretty clear. This is pretty hard evidence that the historicist view is a strong view. Uh, like I said, I, I tend to be a mixture of the historicist spiritualist. So I, I see this as what it is. I see it for what they say it is. Now, let's go into the description of the locust horde because the Bible doesn't just talk about what they do. It talks about what they look like. And this is also going to help us understand the, uh, the historicist view. So verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like the like horses prepared for battle. On uh, on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces like human faces. Their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is called Apollyon. Okay, Abaddon and Apollyon Hebrew and Greek names, words, which mean the same thing, destruction. But let's go back to the description of this locust army. They have crowns on their heads. They have uh, faces like men, but they have hair like women. They are seen um, as, uh, as if they have long hair. And uh, if you think about this, this also aligns with a Muslim view of an ar- a Muslim army because Muslims do not cut their hair, typically. Uh, they have long beards. They uh, would wrap up their hair in their turbans. And you think about crowns and long hair, uh, beards and long hair and all this kind of thing, it kind of just keeps pointing to this idea that these were the Arab Muslims who invaded the Eastern Roman Empire in 600 AD. And they had breastplates of iron, which actually they did. The The, the Muslim armies wore breastplates of iron. So, and then the stinging tails, another interesting fact. Muslim soldiers were known in the 600s, they were known, historically speaking, for fighting well over the backsides of their horses. In other words, they were very skilled at taking their swords and wielding it over the back of their horse's tail and actually killing enemies who were chasing them from behind. So they had those scorpion stingers, if you will. This is just crazy to me. It's just interesting. I don't know if it's interesting to you, but it's interesting to me because lots of proof here that the historicist view is pretty accurate. 
But let's talk about the preterist view because that also has a strong case here from Revelation chapter 9, and I want to show you how that case is strong. Going back to the idea that it's a locust invasion of, uh, of uh, God's people, of, of the land, if you remember that the preterist view is A.D. 70, the Roman invasion of Jerusalem and, and eventually the destruction of Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70 and the annihilation of the Jewish people in A.D. 70 by the Romans, they actually see, the preterist view says, this is the demonic, the, the locusts are demons. They are demonic oppression uh, upon the Jews during their last days or years of the Roman siege of Jerusalem, the last five months possibly, right? So there are reports in history, we have historical records, that in the final days of Jerusalem, again, AD 65 to AD 70, uh, people in the city became entirely demon-possessed. They experienced progressive insanity. They lost the ability to reason. They attacked one another. They followed the most delusional messages of false prophets and teachers. Fathers killed their families. Mothers ate their children. This is historical fact. All of those experiences, all of those travesties, as horrible as they are, you need to realize that if it's demonic oppression, then this is just a description of the activity of Satan. Remember, Jesus says that Satan is the one who comes to ki steal, kill, and what? Destroy. What does Apollyon and Abaddon mean? Destroy. Where does this destruction come from? From the pit that is open, from the smoke, and it comes in through the Roman army into the city of Jerusalem in AD 70, and people are also given to mass delusion as demonic forces overrun the nation that rejected Jesus. You say, why? And now you say, why so terrible? Why did God allow such a terrible thing to come upon the Jews in AD 70? Because remember that that was the generation to whom Jesus was sent and who killed and put to death Jesus, that generation. Okay, you have to remember this. The religious, the religious establishment partnered with the Romans, uh, the Roman government to put Jesus to death in, in 33 AD. Now, this does not mean that all Jews killed Jesus. Please do not believe that. I don't believe that. We never say that. That is actually wrong to say. That generation to which Jesus was sent was corrupt. It was corrupted by Roman influence. It was corrupted by worldly indulgence. It was corrupted by greed. Jesus talked about all these things. John the Baptist talked about all these things. Jewish men railed against this before Jesus and before John the Baptist. So it was a corrupted generation. When Jesus comes to them, they reject him. Now think about what Jesus does for that generation too. He comes into Jerusalem in AD 33, and he casts out demons. He casts out legions of demons out of one guy. Uh, he cast out demon after demon after demon after demon. And then they took that guy, they took Jesus, who was eliminating demons from them, and they put him on a cross and they killed him. And, and, and they basically just rejected the earthly ministry of Jesus. So here's what you have to see. This is very crazy. You're, you're gonna look, this is just crazy. Think about this. They had a temporary reprieve from demonic oppression because the Son of God with the authority to cast out demons came to their city. And they killed him. They put him, to, they put him on a cross. They rejected him. Of course, we know he rose three days later and uh, sent his disciples off uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit to win the nations uh, with the gospel. But what did Jesus say in Matthew 12? Matthew 12 has a little passage that we Christians really struggle to interpret. But if you think about 
the preterist view of Revelation chapter 9 and the demonic horde being the locust horde that sweeps into the Jerusalem city in AD 70, I want you to think about what Jesus says in Matthew 12 now in light of that. Matthew 12 verse 43 says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So, listen to this last line. So also will it be with this evil generation. Jesus talking about the generation in AD 33. This is crazy for me to think about. He came, he cast out demons, he swept and he put in order. Remember, he swept the temple literally, physically, of money changers and robbers and, 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 and the people who were uh, swindling the people of God coming to worship there. He literally swept the house and, and put it in order. The demons fleed when Jesus came. When they put Jesus to the cross and rejected him, guess what happened? Those, seven de those demons got seven other demons with them and came back into the city. And 40 years later, the city is overrun with demonic oppression. To me, that's just crazy. To me, that's a strong case for the preterist view in interpreting Revelation chapter 9. And remember what Jesus said on the, on the way to the cross. Remember that when he's going to the cross, it says in Luke chapter 23, 27, there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Okay, so there's women watching him go to the cross and they're, they're weeping, they're lamenting, they can't believe this is happening. But Jesus on the way to the cross turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, your next generation. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. This is a strong correlation to what Revelation chapter 9 verse 6 says. In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. We, we know that there are many people, even into this, to this day, uh, and, and in the days of Jesus, where demon possession was in their lives, they tried to kill themselves, but they couldn't. They would cut themselves, but they couldn't kill themselves. And, and so, again, we have strong evidence of the preterist view of Revelation chapter 9. This is, a demonic, this is a demonic army coming against God's people who rejected God's Son. This is the judgment of God for putting Christ on the cross on that particular generation. Now, the preterists have a point also concerning the description of these locusts because Josephus writes, now this is crazy, uh, going back to the appearance, remember it says that they were like, uh, they had men, male faces but women's hair. Now, Josephus is a Jewish historian from around 75 AD, and he actually wrote books about the Roman conquest of the city of Jerusalem, and he writes about what the men did during that time. This is crazy too. Listen to what he says. This is direct from Josephus. AD 70, they gave themselves up, the men, gave themselves up to effeminate practices, plating their hair and putting on women's clothes, drenched themselves with perfumes and painting their eyelids to make themselves attractive. They copied not merely the dress, but also the passions of women, devising in their excess of licentiousness unlawful pleasures in which they wallowed as in a brothel. Whoa, yikes. This is A.D. 70 writing about what was going on in A.D. 65 to A.D. 70 in the city of Jerusalem. Men were giving themselves over to effeminate and female practices. They had the faces of men, but they had women's hair and all that kind of stuff. This is the description of the locust plague and what happened, the demonic oppression that happened to the people who were left in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. 
I, I just think this is crazy. And you think about this in our modern age where we have, and this is, again, politically incorrect, but that's why you come to the deep end because I don't give a rip about political correctness. Uh, you, you think about our modern age and where we have, we have the exact same thing happen, men becoming women, uh, women becoming men. The, 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 the distortion of gender, the distortion of what makes a man a man, what makes a woman a man, woman. <laughs> What makes a woman a woman? <laughs> and, and how both genders are, are distinct, different, and reflective of the image of God together, but they are not in any way uh, uh, called to disavow their specific gender and embrace the other. Never. That's never been God's intention. And, and, and I would say this, and I would suggest this with, with absolute certainty, that those who struggle with these identity disorders, we gotta stop. we got to stop just being the politically correct game around here and say there is demonic influence here. There is demonic influence here. The, the devil the devil is real demons are real these are not they're not jokes they are not they are not cartoons and i believe they are messing with our children and with our generation as we move further away from christian truth we are moving further into an openness for demonic influence now it's not everybody it's not everywhere but it's growing it's increasing and we got to see we got to read history or we are doomed to repeat it and that's exactly what happens here in AD 70, according to the preterist view. Now, the futurist view of this locust horde, and by the way, the star that descends from heaven. Bad news, Catholics. Once again, it's the Pope. <laughs> I'm sorry, Catholics. Uh, please hang with me, though. Not all Catholics are bad. I love Catholics. Praise God for our Catholic brothers and sisters who believe that Jesus alone is the way to salvation. Amen. But the fallen star is the Pope. Some, some futurists identify this. Some also believe that uh, the Pope... Uh, will institute, and not this current pope, but a pope in the future. Again, future's view during the tribulation. A future pope will start to embrace false doctrines and start to disseminate these false doctrines throughout the church, such as new thought, spiritism, new age philosophies, and others. Most, most futurists, however, good news Catholics, most futurists see the fallen star as Satan himself. The locusts are demonic hordes released against unrepentant sinners during the tribulation. The 144,000 are safe because they are sealed by God. Uh, demon, demon-possessed people in the Gospels did not have control over their own desires, and so they also could not take their own lives. I already mentioned that, but this is, again, the description of locusts. This is all, uh, a Hal Lindsey classic interpretation here of Revelation chapter 9. The description of locusts uh, have been equated by Hal Lindsey and others to uh, Cobra helicopters, uh, possibly from Russia. And if you ever look it up, you can Google Cobra helicopters later, not now. But you will see that, you know, it's a stretch, but you could possibly say, oh, it looks like a locust, you know, but there's no crown of gold and there's no hair and it's just, it falls apart pretty quickly as you actually read the text and then look at the picture of the helicopter. But I, th- I think it's a stretch that that's what those are. But nonetheless, demonic hordes, totally plausible in the future's view. I'm not disparaging that view. I'm just saying this is the wrath of God upon uh, unrepentant uh, generation. The spiritualists see the locust horde as internal decay. And that's important. Internal decay from within the Roman Empire. And history does show itself that, that, that Rome did destroy itself from within. Uh, yes, yes, the Goths and the Turks, or the Arabs, sorry, came in and destroyed both the Eastern and Western R- Roman Empire. 
but it was pretty weakened. It was pretty weakened by its selfish indulgence, by its greed, by its lusts, by its, by its adulterous practices, by its sexual morality, just like you see today in America, just like you see today in the West. Uh, any culture where sexual morality is celebrated, um, propagated, um, taught, you know, normalized, you're going to see decay rotting slowly from within. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over the course of centuries. And so that's why a, a, gen a nation can get away with it for several centuries. And then eventually it comes back to bite them. And, and I was just thinking about the internal rot of our age right now, where we see sexual morality prevalent in our culture, um, uh, illegal drugs prevalent, legal drugs, prescription drugs, being abused, the prevalence of legalizing marijuana and all of these practices that not too long ago, these practices uh, were considered completely wrong. And now today they're celebrated. In fact, I was watching a movie, one of my favorite movies yesterday. I was watching it last night. Walking Tall. Have you ever seen this movie? Has anybody seen this movie? No. You ever seen the movie? Michael, you haven't seen this movie? Oh, this is a guy movie. You got to see this movie. It's, it's uh, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You guys know who The Rock is, right? Oh, yeah. yeah right. Do you smell? Right, what the rock is cooking. But anyway, it's a it's a it's a great movie where the guy comes home from the army and he kind of cleans up his bad town. But in that movie, the two bad influences in that movie. This is a 2004 movie, 2004 movie, 15 year old movie now. Okay, the two bad influences in that movie are casinos and marijuana. <laughs> and he comes in and he cleans house. He cleans house of the marijuana, the sale of drugs, and and the making of all other illegal drugs. But also, the casino is filled with corruption and destroying the 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 the, the city and the community. He comes in and he cleans it up. And now I think about it. I was watching this movie last night. I'm like, wait a second. This is, night, this is 15 years old. The two bad influences are marijuana and casinos. And now today in 2019, hey, we're celebrating casinos and we're celebrating and legalizing marijuana. We're putting it everywhere because, hey, the more the merrier. And I think even Kamala Harris, a Democratic presidential nominee or, or presidential candidate, not nominee, candidate, just talked about it, just, just celebrated the fact that she smoked marijuana in, in college and she thinks it brings more joy to people and we should have more of it. It's like, this is where we're going as a culture. We're going to have a president pretty soon saying, it's National Marijuana Day, people. Let's smoke them if you got them. Like, I mean, this is where we're going, and it's crazy to think about. But if we consider the locust horn to be demonic, we have a picture also, by the way, of demonic activity. Back to Revelation 9, because listen, it says faces like men, which means that demons are intelligent. Uh, hair like women, which means demons can be seductive. A woman's hair in the scriptures is constantly referred to as a seductive quality about her. The adulteress's hair is seductive to the, to the simpleton, to the unwise man. So demons are intelligent. Demons are seductive. Uh, teeth like iron's teeth. That speaks of the, once they get their grip on you, they hold you. And demons like scorpions, they're malicious. They sting. Uh, and demons are, they have breastplates like iron. This speaks to their invulnerability. That means that they attack and it's almost as if they can't be resisted. And you say, man, I'm feeling depressed here about demonic activity. Well, listen, if you're a child of God, you have nothing to fear because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But that doesn't mean that unbelievers are exempt from demonic activity. Sometimes we look at the activity of unbelievers and we got to see it for what it is. It is the intelligent, seductive, ferocious, malicious, um, activity of demons influencing people who do not and are not, who do not submit to Christ's rule and are not safe in his power and in his presence. So anyway, I just, I just want to encourage you like that, like if you're a Christian, these demons that will attack all over the world and it's all over the place, they will not 
get a hold of you. But you've got to be on your guard, and you can't just listen to the voices of culture saying, well, this is what this is, and that's what this is, and science tells us this, and science tells us that. Wait, 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 wait. We are people of the truth. We are people of God. We listen to what he says over and above what others say. The historicists, okay, let's uh, go back to this here real quick. In uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, um, moving on, actually. So here's what it says, verse 13. Then the sixth angel, so moving on from the fifth angel to the sixth angel, blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice of the four, from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Very key uh, statement there. The, the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Just remember that. Uh, so the four angels who had been prepared for the, uh, for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Okay, let's go quickly here. Uh, the historicist sees the sixth angel as the Ottoman Empire, also known as the Turkish Empire. Uh, the Turkish Empire was a four-part empire, thus four angels. A four-part empire that um, was divided by the Shah's four sons. And the time of their invasion of the Eastern Roman Empire, now called the Byzantine Empire by this time, by the way, was from 1000 AD to 1453 AD. Now, the day, it says there uh, in verse 15, the day, uh, the hour, the day, the month, and the year. The, the, again, numbering of time in the book of Revelation is usually symbolic. And that's going to matter a lot when we get to the millennium. So it works like this if you do proper numerological studies in apocalyptic literature. One day equals one year. One month equals 30 years. One year equals 365 years. I hope that makes sense. So if you add all those up, it's about 400 years. And that's about the period of time that the Ottoman Empire invaded and ultimately completely destroyed once and for all the Eastern Roman Empire. And so that's how the historicist uh, interprets uh, Revelation 9, 13 to 15. Um, then it says this in verse 16, before we get to the other versions, uh, the other interpretations, because I got a little bit of a side note too that we're going to get to. Revelation 9, 16 says the number of mountain troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. 10, so real quick, that number is 200 million. The number of the troops was 200 million, and I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire, and of sapphire, and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's teeth, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. I just want to make a note there, that smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, and smoke and fire coming out of the bottomless pit in the fifth trumpet. You've got to think about this. When you go and see, when you go and see a magician, what does he do to kind of de de to deceive you? What does he do? He, he uses smoke. We even just have the, like, the, the same the, the, the little saying, smoke and mirrors. With smoke and mirrors, what does it mean? Well, I'm going to use smoke to, de to, to deceive how you see. I'm going to uh, fog your vision. That's what smoke does. And so what you have to remember here is it's speaking to not maybe literal smoke and fire and sulfur, but deception out of the mouths of this army. Just think about that for a moment. Just remember that. Verse 18, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed and the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, and by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in, is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Okay, so the 200 million number, well, the Turkish uh, nation, Turkish empire, sorry, uh, used to regularly refer to their uh, troops as myriads, and myriad is actually a biblical term for 
hundreds of millions of soldiers. Uh, and the colors listed here uh, of their breastplates, fire, sapphire, sulfur, that's red, blue, and yellow, are the exact colors of the Turkish army. Um, smoke and fire and sulfur, again, refer to deception, but it could also refer to physical gunfire. The Turkish Empire was one of the first to use cannon fire uh, in their conquest of nations. And they would actually shoot, this is crazy to think about, in 1000 to 1400 AD, they would actually shoot cannons 200 pounds to 1200 pound balls. Like that's an enormous cannonball. And they would decimate people. So it could possibly be a literal uh, interpretation there of smoke fire coming, uh, sulfur and smoke and fire coming out of the destruction of those cannonballs. But as I studied the historicist view of Revelation, I am challenged. Let me just do a little side note. I am challenged. And here's what I'm challenged about. I am challenged as an American Christian by the lack of historical awareness as Christians today. We need to know our history. We need to know our history. Christians, listen to me very carefully. Um, I always thought Revelation was about what was going to happen later. But if I think about this now and I look at it and I say, wait, maybe this is a sweeping, this is a sweeping panorama of church history, my eyes are open. I'm thinking about, wait a second, we've got to learn from history. Because again, if we don't learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. And that leads me to a side note. And this side note is so important for our day and age. In our age of plurality, in our age of pluralism, in our age of religious tolerance, in our age of what's true for you is not true for me, and what's true for you, what's true for me may not have to, does not necessarily have to be true for you. Okay, listen, that's, that's a bunch of baloney. If it's true, it's true, period. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, something could be true for you, but not true for me. That doesn't even make sense, friend. It's either true or it's not true. For instance, when you take somebody and you put them on trial for murder, and if it's true that he said to somebody in, in witness, I'm going to kill that SOB, and that person comes and testifies in court that he said it, we don't say, well, that's true for you. Like, the defense doesn't say, well, that's true for you. That No, he said it. We have a recording. He's saying it on the record. It's true. There's no such thing as true for you. Anyway, I go on that tangent for this reason. We've got to talk about the truth of Islam. We've got to talk about the truth of Islam. I've mentioned them already in this podcast, but let's talk about the Christian view of Islam. And this is a side note. So listen, Islam, what is it? I am amazed at how many Christians are not even aware. They haven't even done their research. They haven't even studied on Islam. You should. You should learn what this religion, what this actually is not even a religion, according to them, it's a way of life, what this way of life is about. Now, what I need you to understand is Islam is the first monotheistic faith that was established after Christianity in human history. That is not a falsehood. That is absolutely 100% true. Every other religious faith in every other people group that has ever been discovered by sociologists and by anthropologists have all held to a polytheistic form of faith. Polytheistic meaning many gods. Monotheism meaning one god. Now, the first historical monotheistic faith in human history is Judaism, the Jewish faith. Abraham comes out of polytheistic Ur of the Chaldees by God's calling and is established as God's people to serve and worship one God. The Shema, the, the highest creed of uh, Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Shema in Hebrew, Shema, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the first monotheistic faith in human history is Judaism. Out of Judaism comes Christianity. After Christianity, 600 years after Christianity, Islam. And I say all that to say this, because I believe, and this is totally politically incorrect, I believe that Islam is Satan's first monotheistic faith. I really do believe that. I believe that Satan looked at Christianity taking over the world because it was from AD 33 to AD 400. It literally takes over the Roman Empire to the point that Constantine, the empire, the emperor at that time, has to has to convert to Christianity for political uh, reasons and then make Christianity legal because he can't stop it. And it's literally taking over the world. And Satan looks at the landscape of the religious uh, world and says, whoa, people really fall for this monotheistic stuff. How can I deceive them away from the truth? Well, here's what I'm going to do. And this is what Satan has been doing from the beginning. I am going to create a false alternative. I am going to create a, 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 um, a, a, a misleading, albeit seductive alternative to the truth. You have to understand that Satan cannot and has not ever really created anything new. All that he can ever do is see what God does and kind of mimic it. That's all he can ever do. He is, he is the ape of God. He is the monkey of God. That's what you have to understand. He is not equal to God in any way, shape, or form. But what he does is he takes what God says and he manipulates it. Did God really say? That's what he says to Eve in the garden. Did God really say? What is he doing? Manipulating what God has already said. And so Islam created 600 years, listen, 600 years after Christianity. I am amazed at how many, how many Christians, especially the young Christians, how many young Christians are uninformed as to the origins of Islam. And they actually believe that Islam was an ancient religious system that grew up right alongside Judaism and Christianity. It did not. It actually started 1,400 years ago uh, this is 600 years after Christianity, and check this out, 2,100 years after Judaism. So why do I emphasize this so much? Because you have to realize that, first off, in the world, there's not many monotheistic faiths. There's not. There's like five, and it goes like this. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. Now check this out, Islam in 622 uh, AD. Now check this out. The other two are the Baha'i faith, which was started in 1863, and you'll never guess this one, guys. Rastafarianism. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, in 1930, these are the five big monotheistic faiths. Hinduism, not monotheistic. Buddhism, not monotheistic. Uh, Zen Taoism, not monotheistic. There is no, they're all plural. They're all plural gods. Greek mythology, the Roman gods, the pantheon of gods. They're always, all these other philosophies of religion in ancient cultures and modern cultures are pluralistic in gods. The only ones that are singular are Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and then, of course, the two crazy ones, okay? But listen, I only say that to say this. You've got to realize your history. You've got to know your history so that you're not deceived. Let's talk about Islam's founder, okay? Let's talk about what happened. What made this guy do this? Uh, Muhammad, uh, 622 AD. Um, again, 600 years after Christianity. I want to say this, first of all. Muhammad himself, I don't think at first, was an evil man, Okay, I think he became an evil man through deception because the evidence is, is that he was a good and generous businessman uh, for much of his life. And he actually did not like the, the gluttonous and sexual indulgences of the Arab people. And it really bothered him that people were so evil. And he wanted to change that. 
Um, Edward Challen writes a book called Love Your Muslim Neighbor. This is written for Christians, and he says this. He says, he, this is Muhammad, was no villain, nor did he act in an underhanded way. He was well-liked and courteous. He was both eloquent and correct in his use of language. He was firm and prompt in making decisions. He was considered very faithful and generous to his workers, followers, and friends. Well, Muhammad actually was um, hired by a very wealthy woman who eventually fell in love with him because he was so honest and so industrious, and she married him. And then he had this enormous business empire, and he had a ton of time on his hands, and he could leave his business endeavors in the hands of his associates. And because he had all this time on his hands, he actually went to the mountains to meditate and pray. And as he meditated and prayed in the wilderness, in the desert, eventually he saw a vision of this angel. He said that later it would be Gabriel. And Gabriel said, write this down, and he gave him the revelation that would become the Quran. Well, that actually led to a religious system that he wanted to institute upon the people of Mecca. But they didn't want to listen to him. So what did he do? He gathers a bunch of disgruntled men around himself and forms an army of 10,000 men and invades Mecca with 10,000 men and converts the entire city to Islam, his religious system, by force, by the edge of the sword, he converts. This is in 600 AD. Again, remember, this comes from the pit of hell. I'm sorry to say it's not politically correct. I know, but it's true. And there are a number of Muslim internet sites, and you will find these if you just Google them, you will find them that vehemently argue that jihad does not mean holy war and that this is a false claim of Western propaganda. However, Muhammad himself taught his followers to oppress or kill non-Muslims. He did. I'm sorry to say. This is true. And there are a number of supporting passages in the Quran that say the exact same thing. Yes, Christian, Islam's goal is total world domination. That is the goal. If you do any amount of honest research, if you read the Quran for yourself, you will see making all people Islamic is the goal of the Muslim faith. The Quran promises great rewards to those who give their lives to this end. Now, the vast majority of Muslims do not practice this, but there is a small, albeit sizable, minority of Muslims that do practice this. Holy war, jihad, Dying for the faith. Dying to kill those who refuse to convert to the faith. Suicide bombers. Plane hijackers. This is according to their scriptures. Yes, it is. It says this. Those that have fought for Allah's cause with their wealth and their persons are held in higher regard by Allah. It is they who shall triumph. The Lord has promised them joy and mercy and gardens of eternal bliss where they will dwell forever. Allah's reward is great indeed. Do you know that Islam today is frustrated by the fact that their movement over the last 150 years has slowed down precipitously? And it's still growing crazy, like crazy. But, but before World War I, Islam was slated to take over the world. The victory of the Allied forces in World War I over the Ottoman Empire was a tragic blow to the advancement of Islam. You have to know your history. And because that happened, they see the West, us, America, Britain, Europe, they see us as the establishment that must overcome. And of course, the establishment of the Jewish state of Israel in 1948 in the, middle, in the Middle East, infuriates them. I mean, of course it does, because that was done by who? By, the Brit- by, by Britain and by the United States, mostly. And now I want to talk to you about the foundations of Islam, the theological foundations. Uh, in, according to Islam, God is impersonal, cannot be known, and is prominently figured as a God of judgment, power, and distance. 
Think about how different that is than the Christian God. The Christian God wants to know us. The Christian wants us to know him. The Christian God wants to come near to us and says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. The Islam faith claims, number two, to be the only true faith for all peoples. So all these people that say, oh, all religions are basically the same and they're pretty much all the same. No, Christianity says it's the way. Christianity says it's the way. We say it's the way because Jesus said, I am the way. And Islam says, I am the way. Islam says, this is the only way. So listen, stop listening to the noise of the people that don't know what they're talking about. I will tell you what they're saying. Uh, according to Islam, Adam was the first Muslim. Adam, yes, that Adam. This is why people think it's an ancient religion that, ties, that grew up right alongside Judaism. It did not. But they adopt. They adopt, as the devil can only do, he cannot create, he can only imitate. They adopt the Jewish scriptures and stories to their own narrative. Abraham did not offer Isaac, according to Muslim thought. Abraham offered Ishmael on the mountain. Ishmael was the son of promise. And so, you know, they just take what God put down in the word and they kind of redefine it and reorient it and do exactly what the devil's been doing since the Garden of Eden. Has God not said or has God really said, right? The text of the Quran, I wonder sometimes if I read the Quran, sometimes I just wonder if I read the Quran in our church, would people even know it's the Quran and not the Bible? Let me just read a passage. Cling, hold fast, one and all, to the faith of Allah, and let nothing divide you. Remember the favors he has bestowed upon you, how he united your hearts when you were enemies so that you were now brothers through his grace, and how he has delivered you from the abyss of fire when you were on the brink of it. Thus Allah makes plain to you his revelation so that you may be rightly guided. That is a quote from the Quran, not the Bible. Sounds very similar though, doesn't it? Guess what it is? It's the devil saying, has God not said? Has God really said? Women, oh, in Islam, mm, treated almost as slaves. The Quran provides permission for a man to take up to four wives and beat them into submission. Yes, it is in the Quran. You say, oh no, that can't possibly be in the Quran. I will quote the Quran directly. Surah 4, verse 13. Men have authority over women. Because God has made the one superior to the other, and because they spend their wealth to maintain them. Mm, that's very pro-women. So good women are obedient, guarding the unseen parts because God has guarded them. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and banish them to beds apart and beat them. Then if they obey you, seek not occasion against them. Awkward silence from the people who are pro-Islam in this country. Honestly, read it yourself. There is no guarantee. Uh, I think we're on to number four. There is no guarantee of he uh, heaven in Islam. If you are an Islamic person, if you are a Muslim, you have to work your life away at outdoing your bad deeds with good deeds. So it's very similar to the I'm a good person Christian uh, religion in America. I'm a good person. My, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and surely because of that, I'm going to heaven. Well, that's, that's Islam, basically. That's Islam. If you believe that you're not actually a Christian, you're actually an Islamic person. And, that's, and, and by the way, there's still no guarantee. The only guarantee to heaven in Islamic faith is to die for the cause of advancing Islam. Now, their idea of salvation is understood, again, not as personal forgiveness, but as outweighing your good deeds, your bad deeds with your good deeds. Even secular historians agree that the growth of Islam, historically speaking, has always come at the edge of the sword. In Islam, mind you, again, formed five, 600 years after Christianity, the teaching of Jesus is radically altered. They believe in Jesus. They just don't believe that Jesus actually was the final prophet. They believe, he, and he's definitely not God, according to Islam. He was a prophet sent from God, and he had a lot of good things to say. And he didn't die on a cross, according to Islam. Actually, Judas and him switched places at the last minute. Judas went to the cross and Jesus went to heaven. 
And Jesus is in heaven right now. Islam believes that. And Jesus is coming back again. Islam believes that. And when he comes back, he's going to die, and Muhammad will take over the world. That's the end-time philosophy of Islam. You need to know this stuff. You need to be aware. You need to be informed. Because what happened before is going to happen again. This is the truth of Islam. And I am not demonizing Islamic people. Please listen to me. Love your Muslim neighbor. Love your Islamic neighbor. Absolutely. Do good to them. Bless them. Do not curse them. Do not hate them. Do not harm them. Ever. But I am trying to tell you that you have to see what the Islamic faith is all about. The, the vast majority of Muslims are peace-loving people. But that does not mean that the movement is a peaceful movement. I think, it, I think about it like this. We want... We want less lukewarm Christians and more lukewarm Muslims, honestly. That's what, that's, what would make, <laughs> that's what would make the world really cool. Because as long as Muslims don't take seriously the Quran scriptures about killing the infidel, killing the non-believer, killing the person that you can't convert, as long as they take those like half-hearted, like a lot of Christians take love your neighbor half-heartedly, we're good. And what we really need in the world today is more radical, dedicated Christians who will give their lives for the sake of others, and uh, far less radical Muslims who will take other people's lives for the sake of their religion. This is the view of this is the view of Islam that you have to be aware of, and I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to sum all this up really quickly at the end, but just stay with me. Let's get back to this this passage in Revelation chapter nine, uh, because again, now we've got to talk about the preterist view of uh, the sixth trumpet. After the demonic invasion of Jerusalem in AD 70, the Romans came from the Euphrates River and invaded Israel. So again, the Euphrates is mentioned because that's where the Roman invasion came from. And Jesus said about that generation in Luke chapter 21, 32, this generation will not pass away until all this takes place. What takes place? The surrounding of Jerusalem by their enemies. Uh, the, not one stone left on top of another by the destruction of the city. That happened in that generation. So Jesus actually kind of proves the point that Revelation 9 is talking about the pre-AD 70 period of time. Jesus also referred to the destruction of Jerusalem as the fulfillment of all that is written in the Old Testament. Luke 21, 22 says, for these days of vengeance, AD 70, are to fulfill all that is written. In other words, the preterist believes that AD 70 is the fulfillment of all the judgment of God on the people of on the people of God from the old covenant who rejected the Son of God. AD 70 is finished. The, 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 the warnings of Deuteronomy 28. If you ever go to Deuteronomy 28 and you read Deuteronomy 28 and then you line it up with how Josephus and Jewish historians describe the AD 70 siege of Jerusalem, it's like reading the same passage. Like Deuteronomy 28 says, the Lord will bring a nation against you, this is verse 49, from far away from the ends of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. What is the symbol of Rome? An eagle. This is Deuteronomy 28 written in 1500 B.C. And it says, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. That's, that's Roman Empire speech right there. Deuteronomy 28, 53. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress which your enemies shall distress you. Remember when I talked about that that's what happened at the fifth trumpet, that they, they ate their children? It was actually prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 28, 1,500 years prior if Israel rejected their God. Who did they reject just prior to AD 70? They rejected Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the God, Yahweh. And the exact curses that Deuteronomy 28 warned them of came to pass under the Roman siege. 
I just think it's just crazy. You just think about this. This is crazy, and it's enlightening, and it's it's illuminating, and it should wake up your faith to stay strong and hold on to Christ and realize that what God says in his word has come to pass and will come to pass again. The future's view of the sixth angel is that the four angels are the same ones who held back the winds of heaven in Revelation chapter 7. An angelic judgment on the world during the tribulation happens during this time, and the time reference, uh, hour, day, month, year, that actually just refers to the exact hour at which God wants it to be accomplished. And there's a divided view on who the horsemen are. Some see it as demonic spirits. Some see it as an oriental army, an Asian army, actually. When I was growing up, they, this, that's what they saw. The, the, the 200 million army per, uh, was, 200 million men army was actually China. I don't know if anybody listening or watching ever heard that, but this was a big thing. The Associated Press in 1961 said that China had the capacity to field 200 million soldiers. I don't know where they got that number, but way, way overestimated. Even today, China's, China, which is the largest army in the world, is only 2.1 million soldiers. So it kind of fails on the merits there of historical fact. But nonetheless, that's their view. That's one of the views. Again, divided view in terms of the futurist view of um, the sixth trumpet. The spiritualist says, uh, remember, it mentions the golden altar here in Revelation chapter 9 about the sixth trumpet. And you got to go back to the beginning of Revelation chapter 8 where we talked about that the golden altar is where Jesus takes the prayers of the saints and then from the prayers he sends judgment to the earth upon the enemies of God's people. And so that's what they see this as. This is These are internal forces. This 200 million man army is actually not a million man, 200 million man army physically, but 200 million ways in which people will be judged for their sins as they reject the Son of the living God, the message of the gospel, and the ways of God. And so these refer to uh, destroying forces such as wars, malnutrition, famine, terrorism, cancers, diseases, inflicting upon mankind the terrors of human sin, and presenting a foretaste of hell. Now, summing up. We can take these four views and come up with some common ground. We can, we can. Here, here, here's the common ground, and I've already said it several times, but I'll say it again. We need to know history. We, we need to know history. We need to remember what happened. We need to learn what happened to the Roman Empire. We need to learn to, what happened to the Byzantine Empire. We need to learn what happened to the Ottoman Empire. We need to lo- know this. Why? Because if we do not learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it. And these two trumpets, the fifth and the sixth trumpet, okay, think about this. They refer to... Two deadly forces upon the people of the earth for their sin. The two forces are external forces from without that come in and conquer them and internal forces from within that decay them internally and make them weak. External armies, internal rot, combined to bring down the Roman Empire, combined to bring down the Ottoman Empire, combined possibly to bring down the cultural West right now. We are seeing the same thing happen in our country and the same thing happen in the Western, in Western civilization right now. Right now, Western civilization has this internal rot, the fruits of the sexual revolution, the fruits of scientific discovery that has eliminated our, 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 our desire or need for God because we're smarter than God now. We, we know what, how we came about. Evolution is true and all this kind of stuff. And so we give ourselves over to these false lies and deceptions of the enemy. And then we are sitting ducks we are sitting ducks for external armies. I, I, mean, I mean, I hate to be the guy that's a woe judgment guy, but sometimes we just need to wake up to the reality that this is entirely possible to happen again. Read Revelation, learn these things so that you can stay strong in your faith and, and know, remember, that God will guard his people. And that is very important to remember. So the last two verses in Revelation chapter 9 are stunning. 
And they are stunning because they show us the response to these judgments. This is crazy. Just listen to this. After all this judgment, after all the plagues, after the locusts, after the famine, after the wars, after all that stuff, what is the response of these people experiencing these judgments? Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. Look at this. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual morality or thefts. After all this judgment, they say, eh, we're going to keep going. <laughs> to me, that is nutso. That's crazy. It's, but it speaks to the fact that, that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, does not produce repentance. It doesn't. Um, the judgment and the wrath of God, I hate to say it, but you got to listen, is final. And so you say, you say, well, how do I learn? Well, right now, we are in an age of grace, an age of opportunity for you to turn and look at Jesus and find in him the power to repent, the power to turn, because the scriptures are clear. In spite of the horrific events upon the human race because of their sin, they still did not turn to God. And by the way, sorcery is mentioned here. Sorcery, the word sorcery in Greek is pharmakia. Begins with P-H-A-R-M. A-K-I-A, right? It, it's, where do we get another word from that? Uh, from that? We get the word pharmacy, drug use, uh, mind-altering drugs. These are prevalent in our country right now. And even now, we live in an age where we see thefts, we see murders rising. It's, it's just happening now, and there's no repentance. We want to blame guns. We want to blame society. We want to blame this person. We want to blame that. We're blaming everything except the human heart from which all these evil things come. And the only one, the only thing that can change the human heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until we get that, until we realize that, we are just fighting a losing battle because men's hearts are darkened. But Jesus Christ is the light that shines in the heart and brings about the revelation of who he is and changes people's lives. That's why we do what we do here at Water Church. That's why the deep end matters. That's why we want you to tune in. That's why we want you to help us partner with us to spread the gospel. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us what actually leads to repentance. It's not the wrath of God. It's the kindness of God. Romans 2 verse 4, do you not presume on the, uh, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I think about the prodigal son. And the prodigal son ran away from God, ran away from the father, and he ended up in a famine, and he ended up dirt poor and feeding pigs. And he came to himself in that moment. He decided to come back and serve his father. He said, I, will, I want to be a servant. I'll make me one of your servants. But it wouldn't have been his willingness to serve that would have made him a son. No, it had to be the divine, it had to be the sovereign will of his father who ran out and got to him before he had the opportunity. Listen, in Luke 15, you can look it up. Before he had the opportunity to say, make me like one of your servants, the father said, son. And he made him his son again. He restored him back to sonship. It was his kindness, the kindness of the father restored that son to sonship. And the kindness of God for you right now is for you to realize that you cannot save yourself. You cannot change yourself. You cannot save yourself. Jesus alone can save you. And that's why you turn to him. Summary. Revelation 9 tells us the church will face external enemies and the church will face internal temptations. 
And then thirdly, the church must expect them and endure them. I want to close with this passage from Matthew chapter 24. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Amen. Uh, that's Revelation. I want to just do one quick thing so that we don't end on a sour note. We end on a happy note. Pastor recommends. I got to recommend a movie for you, okay? And I am strong enough. I am strong enough in my, my masculinity to recommend <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> Have you guys seen this movie? No. <laughs> Do you guys see any movies? No. <laughs> yeah, there's Netflixing over there, right? Um, <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians. I watched this last night with my family. I thought it was fantastic. It was really fantastic. And it's about this girl who, you know, she's in love with this guy. And I just want to share this for a reason. There's a pastoral reason, too, to share this. So he's like, <laughs> this guy is like from a majorly rich uh, family in Singapore. And he's dating this girl in New York. And so he decides to take her back for a wedding where he's the best man. And she finds out how rich he is. And then the mother is not very approving of this young girl because she comes from a broken home and, offends, and then you find out other facts about her history that the mother is disapproving of. And so, of course, the story leads you to this question. The story leads you to this great question. Will the guy from the super rich family disobey his mother's wishes and marry the girl that he loves and thus give up all of his wealth, notoriety, fame, and fortune for his wife, for his future bride? Will that happen? And I won't ruin the end for you. But I thought about how even that movie preaches the gospel because the gospel is this. The gospel is that Jesus did give up heaven. He gave up the wealth, the riches, his, his preeminence. He gave up all that. He came to get his bride, and he was willing to do it. And so you can watch the movie to find out if that guy's willing to do it, but I know that Jesus is willing to do it, and to me, that is good news. That's the gospel. Go watch the movie. Watch it with your family. It's pretty clean, if I remember correctly. And uh, just a funny movie, too. So this was The Deep, and I hope that you enjoyed it. It's Wednesdays at noon, every noon, and we ha would love to have you join us every time that we are here. Uh, let us know in the comments anything we can help you with or text uh, a question to us uh, at 508-316-9333 for any questions you might have. Facebook.com slash The Deep End TV, YouTube.com slash Waters Church, The Deep End Channel, or The Deep End TV. Join us next week, I think. Nope. Not next week. We'll be back in two weeks. We'll be back in two weeks. I will see you in two weeks. I hope you enjoyed this time. This was The Deep End.